0: What's going on? I want to welcome you to the show, Sports and Hip Hop with DJ Mad Max, iHeartRadio Live 365. We have one of the greatest to ever do it in this hip hop business, CEO of Loud Records. He's done so much for hip hop, brought in classic acts that we can go on and on. of Wu-Tang, Big Pun, Dead Prez, Mob Deep. We have the one and only here today on the show, Steve Rifkin. Steve, how are you doing today, man?
1: I'm great, man. I'm great. I'm I'm glad to hear that. How have you been
0: during this whole COVID-19 process, especially with your own label now with Spring Sound?
1: Um, the process, honestly, my son has COVID right now and he just passed, you know, he just went to the, uh, everything turned around. He's, he's, he's in good shape now. Um, it slowed me down and it got me to think and just how blessed I am. And just like, I, I, I enjoyed these two years of just reminiscing and figuring out what I'm going to do for my last quarter.
0: And that's good that you've been able to reflect. I heard that you said that you would rather be slow and smart than fast and stupid. (laughs) Exactly. I know exactly how you feel, especially during this time with COVID-19. From being a a business person, a CEO, having your own label, how have you noticed COVID-19 has changed things? I mean, the internet completely changed the way things are run in the music industry. But now with COVID-19 being a factor, how has it changed it in in what you've seen?
1: Take COVID to the side for a second. The record business. Let, let's just start off with that. The record business before COVID was a dying business. Even though streaming was turning around, the executives were lazy. Everybody was lazy. They collected a fat fucking paycheck, lived off the expense account, and they always. They didn't try and create new producers or new writers. They just everybody went after the flavor of the month. COVID comes then you take two of the best producers of all time, Swiss Beats and Timberland. They start a company called Versus just by fucking around. Versus, to me, is the most innovative, creative, and it's moving the needle. Like, if you go on Versus, you know your catalog is going to stream. And they're being authentic to it. So, if there wasn't COVID, this wouldn't have happened even though they've done it before but where it really turned into a business if COVID didn't happen I don't know if I would have started Spring Sound with my son wow um so these are things that are just you know like I wrote my memoirs I don't know if I'm going to do I don't know what I'm going to do with it but you know I wrote my whole life down on nine notebooks
0: that's insane. I was going to ask you that because you mean so much to the world of hip hop and being someone that was real and who actually cared about the artist that you signed and you were doing business with. Has anyone ever approached you for a documentary on your life story? Because there's a lot to tell.
1: Um, yeah, I've been approached. I've just been waiting for the right situation. And I'm not talking like, you know, just when, when I'm ready, when I'm ready to really tell this, the full, full, full story.
0: With versus just being someone that cared about back in the day with loud records, signing that real street hip hop and was authentic to the culture of hip hop, I think versus is a breath of fresh air and in introducing it to the youth and saying that this was hip hop.
1: Yeah. No, I mean it's um I told Swiss maybe like a month ago, I said, You have the most relevant thing in music rights a second. And whatever and however you want to spin it off, it, it's gonna work. And you know, and it takes, you know. A brilliant mind like Swiss, a brilliant mind like Tim, and their team to really, you know, execute it. And what they built, you know, is that next thing. That's, you know, it's not going away. No, it's it's gonna, you know, when they talk about, gen, you know, gen, you know, wealthy where wealth passes down to generations, right? Versus could do that for Swiss's family and Tim's family. And I don't like to count anybody's
0: money. No. You're exactly right. Just thinking about it with everything going on in hip hop right now, you mentioned Flavor of the Month. When did you start to notice that the record companies were choosing artists that are Flavor of the Month? Because you're someone that wants to be selling within 20 years from when you signed them still.
1: I mean, I, I've been saying this ever since the CD came. When the CD came, right, we, we used to sell an album for four dollars an hour right? And say, I'm just, I'm, I'm coming with fake numbers. And say the marketing budget was $50,000. Right? Yeah. So you sell the same album now for $10. We're still with the, the $50,000 of marketing. you got an extra $6. The, the majors became pigs. And they got lazy.
0: You're exactly right. I think you're right about that. And social media plays a huge factor into this too, because they look at the numbers that these artists are doing. But the tricky thing is about it, and I've heard you say about it, as far as competition goes, can't really tell if there's really competition because people can fake their numbers nowadays too.
1: Yeah, but you know what? Fuck the numbers, man. To me, at at the end of the day, it's still all about the music. You know, I just partnered up with Trill myself on this single little week. We're going to do it bi-weekly, 26 singles. So the biggest artists in my career all started off as single deals. Wu-Tang started off as a single deal. Rob Deep started off as a single deal. Akon started off as a single deal. So at, at the end of the day, if I put out 26 singles, two are going to turn into household names because to me, it's still all about the music. And if you don't have the music, you don't have shit. And that's why, you know, if, if you're out, who, who's out right now, who's going to be around in 20 years? Kendrick. I think the baby. Um people who are true to themselves, e- even the Migos. The Migos are growing as they come. So at the end of the day, you, you got to be true to yourself and the music still has to come first fuck everything else.
0: I agree. It's It's what is authentic in the business too that lasts forever. I want to get into your early story because your father was in the business. J- Jules Rifkin, as we know, and you learned a lot from him. Your grandfather actually told you that you would end up either dead or in jail. and He told you to go work with him. So at this time when you were working with your father, what were some of the most important things that you learned when working with him that you would apply to being a CEO of a label as well as managing?
1: In the beginning, I, I had to learn, since I was so dyslexic, I had to learn how to read a map. Don't forget, this is 1980. There was no car phones, there was no cell phones, there was no GPS. I had to learn a map to take me from Kansas City, Missouri, the St. Louis, you know, so it was like reading a map, walking around with 20 dollars worth of quarters, calling the radio stations. I'm at KPRS in, you know, in Kansas City, how do I get to US station? You know, so that's um that that's where that's where I am, you know. Um, but what I learned from my dad is you treat people on how, how they treat you. That's number one. Number two is you gotta learn how to execute. You gotta be good for, you gotta be good on your word and you gotta be disciplined.
0: You're right. Those are three important rules that you just mentioned right there. And something I've heard you say time and time again about that words matter more than a contract.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a handshake. Yeah. I mean that's and that's how I'll go on.
0: You had the opportunity to manage New addition. How was that experience of managing them during the heartbreak out?
1: Um, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I learned a lot. Again, your word is your word, you know, and that's really what it was. To so just, no, I'm not going to promise something for the sake of promising because people are going to hold it to you. And it's easier to say no than yes. So that's... um. That's where, that's where I am.
0: And we're working with Wu-Tang later on, New Edition was kind of something that had the backing in the background for you to think that this group could work, Wu-Tang.
1: Yeah, Wu-Tang, you know, there was a huge buzz on them. I knew what I could do to take them to the next level. And, you know, there was a trust immediately between RZA, myself and the guys. And all I can say is I have my word. Until I fuck up on my word, give me that opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: With new addition, you went on to New Heights and learning more things in the business there. The biopic came out. I know they didn't put you in the biopic. Was there a reason why they well, didn't?
1: So there's a scene that I, I was at the scene when um, it was me, my uncle, and Joe Katz buying out the production company. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why the, I mean, whatever reason, but I was at that lunch.
0: We move forward from new edition. What was the next step in your career after new edition? Was it with loud records? Because I've heard the whole story. How's that?
1: No, it wasn't. It was the Stephen Rifkin company. Okay. Then I hooked up and I hooked up with a company called delicious vinyl.
0: Okay. For your street team. Yeah.
1: For my street team and the radio stuff. Um, so the first two records I did was Tongo, Wild Thing, and Funko Comedina. And then we did Young MC, Bust a Move.
0: You started taking over the street team scene with college radios. You formed your own team of college DJs. And they were pushing all the number one singles in the game at that time.
1: Yeah. So it was, to me, it was more about college radio because that's where I was 19, 20 years old. Hanging out at the college radio stations where I I didn't need to be at a regular commercial radio station hanging out with somebody my age now. So that's really, um, it was amazing. And that's where I learned and that's where I put the whole street team together.
0: You talked a lot about music and sports, too. Those were your main interests.
1: Music, sports, and women. What what does a 20-year-old kid talk about?
0: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) When you were approached with Loud Records, you didn't originally want to do it, but eventually you went through with it because a lawyer got in touch with you and said that you can get your own label. I can get your own label. You had, you had the conversation with your father and then you eventually went through with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to do it. I was happy. I was making around $200,000 a year. I was 28 years old. I'm a basketball junkie by heart. Um, I would leave the office every day at three, be at the park at four, play from four to six, go home, we? eat, come back to the office, do my reports and do my list for tomorrow. So I, I was, you know, I thought I was, you know, $200,000, I thought was $10 million. Um, and then when I got off the label, I said no, because I didn't want the pressure. Seeing what my dad went through. And then my dad called me into New York and he said, and he explained you know, the difference of being in the asset business and the service business.
0: Your first act that you signed was Twista. You went on to sign the Licks. These were all legendary acts. And then eventually you went to go on to sign Wu-Tang. The first record that you heard was Protect Your Neck. Correct, correct. Huge record. Then you heard Tears and you brought them in. They signed their own solo deals because that's something that you were able to grant them is that you were able to get them solo deals.
1: Yes. Listen, I had to survive. I didn't have a massive fit yet. So I had to do whatever it took to, to sign these guys knowing that they were going to be around for the next 25, 30 years.
0: What, was it Protect Your Neck that really sold you on Wu-Tang? Because I heard the story of you going so it into here. It was,
1: it was the energy. You know, yeah. when, they, when they were playing the record live for me, I was in this little office. This guy comes running into the office. I don't know if he worked in the mailroom or RZA, set me up and he says, that's that shit. I've never seen the guy again. Right. But yeah. that was just the energy. I was with Swift from the alcoholics and um, the rest is history.
0: Were you there for the photo shoot for Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers?
1: No, nah, I was too busy working.
0: You're too busy working because <laughs> I always wanted to hear the story behind that album cover because it's, it's legendary. And that album is yeah. just crazy as a whole. Cream was huge. You sent that to radio. Yeah. Method Man, you were in the club with Steve Stout. And then you saw everyone hit the dance floor. Well, that was the Method
1: Man record. Yeah. That was the M-E-T-H-O-D. That wasn't Cream. That was the M-E-T-H-O-D. Yeah. And then, yeah, I was like, I'm staying in New York for the summer. This is going to be a fun song.
0: <laughs> you knew then that you had it hit right there, that this was going to be legendary. As soon as M-E-T-H-O-D, man, hit, the, and then everyone went to the dance floor. You knew then. Yeah. 100%. I've heard the stories of you throwing the chair through the glass and getting the money for Raekwon in the second album and just you fighting for them. Why did everyone decide to go their own ways with signing their own solo deals besides Raekwon?
1: Um, Listen, we were still a little label at, at the end of the day. Me and Ray had a special bond. You know, it's hard to say no to Def Jam when they're offering you a crazy amount of money. I couldn't even afford it, even if I wanted it to. But you know what? I, my philosophy was, you know what, if Def Jam wants Smith, that's great. I'll be able to live and learn and ride over Def Jam.
0: What's you your know? most but, memorable story of being with Wu Tang in the studio early on during the making and end of the Wu?
1: and, and I was never really in the studio. I was in the studio with them maybe once once or twice. And you know, and it was just kicking it with them and just showing that, you know, my my hair was long. I wasn't, you know, I loved hip hop, but you know, I dressed how how I dressed, you know. More like an athlete than you know, any anything else. And it was just talking about life, how I grew up, how they grew up, you know. And there were a lot of similarities, even though know, we grew up on a different side of the tracks.
0: The second album comes around Wu Tang Forever, and actually on Duck Season, RZA mentions you on the song. Did you ever have a conversation with him about that?
1: No, he just did it.
0: He just did it. <laughs> Wu-Tang, one of the most legendary acts, and the logo became to go on to be a symbol that would live on forever. And the apparel, because you saw it on Nike dunks. You started to see that logo on everything.
1: Well, we made that deal. I was consulting Nike at the time.
0: (laughs) That's right. You are going to do all these things with brand campaigns, too.
1: Yeah. So it was, you know, I told somebody today, the ride to the top was the best Best happiest part of my life and that's something really really exciting
0: mob deep you signed mob deep off of here in one track and you heard the first shook ones and what's interesting about shook ones is that the the first one would be sampled for big puns beware i gave you fair warning beware
1: i didn't even know that
0: (laughs) wow No, but that—that's just the classic. To me, I always yeah. like shook ones. The first one better, even though the second one went on to be that huge hit, and that was—that was just as great. But to me, shook ones—the first one for me was saying It crazy. I mean,
1: I mean, they were just special guys. Everybody on label was special. And the thing was, they became a family. Every artist became a family, and everybody just tried to help each other.
0: Prodigy, you were very close with. And it was such a shame when I heard about his passing because your daughter was taking the road test, and you got the news right away you got you, you were getting calls and you knew it had to be something bad. you picked it up, and she had a smile on her face because obviously she passed the road test, but then you got that tragic news and him passing it's just I didn't know but
1: I, it's funny man, you're really doing your research that you're doing a great job thank you. Uh, Yeah, she was walking with a smile on her face, and I'm on the phone and I'm getting the call, and I don't know where to put my focus on. So when she gave me the thumbs up with the smile on her face, I sat down and I broke down and cried.
0: So unbelievable. You actually had a relationship with Prodigy that was closer because I've heard you say in interviews that you were talking to him every couple months. Oh, after loud? After loud.
1: It, during that we spoke every single day. Yeah. Um, after that, I would say twice a month, every yeah. other week. But I would pick his brain too. You know, it wasn't just like him calling. You know, it's like it was a real genuine friendship. We didn't have to agree on everything, but you know, if I said, "Hey, I need you," you know, if I could get him on the phone at four o'clock in the morning, I know he would be there, for me, and vice versa. And I'm not talking about guns. I'm just talking, like, that wasn't our relationship. Our relationship was just straight. How do we help each other and how do we grow? Mm-hmm.
0: Prodigy, one of the greatest MCs of all time. Rest in peace. You gave a tribute to him at the anniversary concert for Loud Radio. Yeah, Radio City. Yeah. yeah. It was, it
1: was as special. Well,
0: as well as Old Dirty Bastard. I've heard you say you would love to see Old Dirty Bastard and DMX in the same room with each other, have a conversation. Yeah. Big pun, um, a tribute too. That was another great one. We'll get into yeah. the big pun story of you signing him because Fat Joe, he called you and wanted, wanted to have you sign him. And he thought that you were screwing him around at one point because you showed up no, and...
1: No, it wasn't. No. So what happened, I was in Chicago when I, I met Joe for the first time. It was over the phone. So I'd say it was a Thursday or a Wednesday, and then we were meeting Monday or Tuesday. And everybody said, don't do the deal with Joe. He's a gangster, an extortionist, a killer, drug dealer, robber, this, that, or whatever. And I was like, nah. And before he walked into the office, I said, Joe, this is what I heard. Like 10 people called me. And I said, it doesn't phase me a lot. I have a family that does all the same things that they say you do. But if you give me your word, I'm going to give you my word and we'll be fine. And we, were, and we became brothers ever since. <laughs>
0: Or how about when he showed up to the office because the, the guy who did the source for the discovery section, the unsigned hype, he showed up that day to when you were to sign him. And you said that to Pun and Joe, as soon as they walked in, you have a deal. Where's your lawyer?
1: Oh, so, so no. So Matty, who was my head of a he okay. did the unsigned. Yeah. He, he used to work at the store. So he was in the meeting and he was, and he walked and he was there when I, I'm like, what are you doing? Here? He goes, Aren't you meeting with Pun? And I'm like, Yeah. And I was like, The second they walked in, I'm like, Who's your lawyer? They said Tim Mangabao. Tim was Wu Tang's lawyer. We had an amazing relationship with Tim. I called Tim on the spot. Tim's office was like five blocks from our office. He came and we did the deal in one day.
0: The first song that you heard from was "You Ain't a Killer," and that just did what it did. It was a street record. Then, yeah, "I'm Not a Player" came,
1: and then still not a player. Mm-hmm.
0: You came the up with Noriega.
1: And then are the with Noriega, I mean, it, it, it was really amazing.
0: Still not a player, was was the radio record that you, you hit radios with. You said, y'all, this is the one that sh- these radio stations have to play. But exactly. your relationship with Pun, you guys weren't as close, I heard. But there was a story that I did hear that he was going to get you this Cuban link chain. I heard the story already that he eventually did give it to you. Because he said once so, he hits a, a certain streak, I think it was $4 million he hit for capital punishment. He said, I'll get you the chain. And you were joking around <laughs> with him, and he threw a box at you.
1: <laughs> so the story is this. You know, we had an amazing relationship. You did? Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, but he was signed to Joe. So I just, I had to go through Joe a lot of times. But Pun would be up in the office every single day. And he must have just came back from his show, and he bought himself a beautiful Cuban link bracelet. And I was like, that's amazing. He goes, I'll get you in if we go gold. I said, Pun was shipping gold. Like, let's do it at 2 million or, you know, whatever it was. So we hit 2 million, we're at 3 million. You know, I forget forget the final number. Um, My product manager, this product manager walks in and this is like a year later and says, um, Pun wants to come up today and discuss the next album. And I'm like, all right, I just got to call Joe. So I guess Joe knew what he was doing. He goes, yeah, take the meeting, Baba. fill me in later. So Pun comes in, and we're talking shit, because we would gamble. we you know shoot dice, this, that, so on, and so on. And I'm like, I thought you were a man of your word. He goes, what do you mean? I go, you said you were going to get me a bracelet at, you know, $2 million." Uh, we're at three or three and a you know I, whatever number i don't even really know what the number was and i was just talking shit. and he goes into his pocket and he throws me a box he goes here let me know what you think of this and i open up the box and it's the same bracelet that he had but just with my name on it.
0: <laughs> so he did come true on his promise
1: oh yeah 100 percent
0: man Capital Punishment, one of the greatest albums of all time in hip hop history. I heard the story about the day that he passed because you were in Hawaii.
1: Yeah. I was in Hawaii. I was ready to retire. I hated the Sony deal. <laughs> and I didn't like the people at Sony beside Tommy Matolo, who was my boss actually. And um I wrote Tommy a letter and saying, I'll return the money. I just can't do it. You guys are just fucking company. Um and just um, I went to go work out, playing tennis, and um, big two Samoans came running that there was an emergency. <laughs> the only one who knew that I was out in Hawaii was my mom. Um, so I thought somebody must have died, but not somebody in my family, not pun. And it was um, Rich Isaacson in my office telling me it looks like pun passed. I'm like, Rich, either you're dead or you're not dead. Like, I hung up the phone and I called Joe and he just passed it to literally as. And I packed up my bags and um, I didn't retire, but um, it was, that was a sad day.
0: Just, and you get so attached to these guys because you're doing business with them and they become your friends. And it, I always wonder that like someone such as yourself or fat Joe, who's lost so many friends in this business, it's just, how you guys deal with that. And I think, because I've heard stories about just people reminiscing. I think you may have done that during COVID, you reflecting on life and the relationships that you've had with these great artists over the years.
1: Yeah, no, you're, 100, you're 100% right. I mean, me and Riz are still talking a bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Baby was another great album and, and Big Pun could accomplish so much more. It's such a shame that he, the way he ended, just the, the whole thing there with, with the weight, it's a shame because he had so much more to achieve. With the yeah. first Latin rapper to go platinum.
1: Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah.
0: Oh, it, it was going to happen. You saw he had all the star power in the world. He was really going to accomplish some things, and it's a shame. But the, just to move on into everything else that you've done in this industry and just people that you've had friendships with, Tupac was your roommate.
1: Yeah, so not official roommate, but my roommate. You know, we travel the road together. And then a guy by the name of Faye Duvenay, who was my right hand at the time, traveled with him and they would be on the road from Wednesday to Sunday. And then on Sunday nights, you come back and Pac would stay at my house for a few days and then go back out on the road. And we did that for a a year.
0: What did you learn from Pac, just by living with him and and working with you that time?
1: the same thing that I've learned from most word, your word is your word. Your word you know, is your word. And you got to fight, fight for what you
0: believe. In. Do you have a Biggie story? Because Tupac and Biggie always go hand in hand when he comes up.
1: No, well, when Pac when was, they, 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 were, they were cool. I met Biggie maybe two or three times. Natty in my office discovered Biggie. He gave him to Pac.
0: Wow. That's hip-hop history right there.
1: Yeah, the one, good, the one good conversation I had with Big E was, was a loud Christmas party. And Puff came through and he brought Big E. It, it was hot as hell. And we just sat down. And we had a drink and we were just talking. It was just like, I was congratulating him on just some, everything that he did.
0: Jay-Z was someone that you really wanted to sign. You wanted him bad. And BFG didn't let you sign him. You were hearing these records. What records were you hearing by Jay-Z? No, no I think we
1: could have signed them. It wasn't Jay-Z or Dane or Biggs. It was BMG. It was BMG. I was fighting with BMG, but BMG wasn't letting me sign up.
0: What records were you hearing from Jay-Z off a of Reasonable Doubt that made you say, I really want this guy?
1: I don't remember. I know it was the single, um, and I, I really don't remember.
0: Eminem was another person that you could have signed in... At the time, he was an underground rapper, and you just didn't think anything of it until the perfect marriage with Dr. Dre came along. And yeah, he but, was perfect but I
1: wasn't. I, I never punched. I punched myself in the head on the J one all, all the time, but M I never did because he would have been if he, if he signed to Lad, he would have been a five six hundred thousand rapper, you know, albums, not three hundred million or whatever his number is. Mm-hmm. I mean, him and Dre was a perfect marriage.
0: Yeah. You came from the album era because albums mattered 100% back there and then the 90s. How come singles have become the thing instead of albums nowadays? It's like albums just don't matter as much.
1: Well, it's all about streaming now. So it's just a whole different. Albums still count, but it's, you just got to be consistent with the, follow, with the flow of your singles.
0: How much profit were artists making back then compared to now, now that you have the streams, when they were actually making actual money from these albums?
1: They're making more money now.
0: They're making really, I never knew that. Wow.
1: Less marketing costs.
0: I think this, but I think I've heard you say that you think that a street team would be perfect for artists nowadays because word of mouth, it really does count.
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, if you had everything that you could do online and then you do everything offline, you add that together, you have a major, major superstar. And that's what I'm trying to convince my son to do now.
0: When did your son start to fall in love with the business that you were in? Because he was a D1 basketball player and he applied his work ethic to what he's doing now with his label.
1: He was always like, when we would go away on vacation, I'd be working out, he would answer the phone or he would call the artist There was one night me and my wife were out to dinner and we come home and there's Akon and his brother Boo and they're playing Madden, you know? So it was just like, he didn't know that he wanted to be in it, but he had that personality where the the artists just loved him.
0: What were some of the things that you, did you teach him anything about the business or he kind of just observed and just followed right along in which he noticed what you did throughout your career?
1: I'm teaching him now just you know baby steps and just you know i believe in you know it's the way my father taught me it's like they throw you in the pool you got to swim or you drown if you drown yeah help like i have another son who's rapping right and he was gonna sign him. i'm like nah we're gonna sign them together and you're gonna run it but i'm gonna make sure neither one of you drown
0: that's amazing especially that you care about your sons in this business too
1: yeah but you know with me and alex i mean we have just a special relationship you know it was even when when i think he was in seventh grade he said that i want to play college ball right we came with our plan we stick to the plan and we didn't go off course i said i'll coach you up to your freshman year in high school with travel ball and everything else like that then you'll get the trainers then you'll get you know we'll put you on a different team and you're gonna have to learn how to take criticism from somebody who's not your dad you yeah. know the rest is history
0: I'd love to hear the story of you getting the picture deal with Miramax for paid in full I was reading about it online
1: the truth is um, my brother did. my brother hooked that deal up with um, a close friend of mine was an agent at Liam Morris and um, they had a meeting I was on my way to London <laughs> and um, I'm sleeping and my brother did. Lambs because he had the meeting with the Weinsteins, and um, he said the meeting went well. We should be expecting papers like within. I go, Who's the lawyer? You know, and he said we're going to use Jamie, who's our attorney. They go, I mean, that deal was done, it was probably the easiest deal I ever made. Besides the funding, the deal was done in 48 hours while we were in London.
0: It's quick. So. And just thinking about competition, because competition is always a major factor in this business. But the end of the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers album, did you prepare to have it released on that day, knowing that Midnight Marauders was going to release and 12th play? Because I want to know how it was back then and release because certain artists today will hold their albums if they notice that other. Nah,
1: I mean, in those days, my my philosophy was in those days, they were record stores. So I just wanted people in the record stores. I wasn't looking like I was going to compete against uh tribe or or our kelly I mean, we came to number three. And that's what we always said we were gonna do. And we sold close to thirty thousand the first week. Mm-hmm. So but the great thing is we stayed at thirty thousand for like thirty weeks.
0: <laughs> so in the end it worked out. That's the main thing. Yeah eventually, you have the Sony deal that happens. Eventually, you bring back SRC. You still had it at the time, but you have SRC. You find Akon and David Banner, and people didn't believe in Akon. They laughed at you, but in the end, who's laughing now?
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's about the music, and you got to fight for, for what you believe in. You know, my right hand at SRC was a guy named Gabi Acevedo. Gabi took Akon. His wife was pregnant at the time. So he did the South and the East Coast. I did the North and the West Coast, and I did it with Akon's brother, Boo. And there were no videos. Nobody knew what Akon looked like. So we would just go into a place and say, hey, we have a new record at Blah, Blah, Blah. We're willing to perform for free. And nobody knew that Boo wasn't Akon. You know, we just, and, and that's where we broke. We broke in Utah, we broke in uh, new Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the rest is history.
0: DMX was someone that you were very close with. We brought him up at the beginning of this interview. You had a dream that you wanted to help DMX with the comeback album. Yes. And you did with Exodus.
1: Yes. But I mean, I got to give all credit to Swiss. I mean, what, what he did and the time and the energy was just really, really amazing.
0: When did you and DMX speak about you managing him? When did this occur?
1: I want to say, what are we, 2018? 2018. We did the deal in
0: 2018. I've heard you say it multiple times that he was happy and in good spirits. And then then you started to hear that news that broke earlier this year. It's just such a shame. And you had to put the video out saying that he wasn't dead because everyone on social media was taking – to it to just get likes and just catch some sort of clout off of someone's death. And it just and and you even described it as being disgusting. disgusting.
1: I mean, mean, it was disgusting. Yeah. And I didn't even want to do it, but the family made me do it. And it was just like, knowing that he was going to be dead within, you know, but it was just like, let them grieve alone for 24 hours without people calling.
0: With Looking at the album now, especially with Exodus, it has that spiritual element to it with Exodus, the religious meaning behind it, just him leaving. Did you think that he kind of saw something that maybe he was going through mentally that may have not shown that something was gonna happen? Do you feel as though there was something there?
1: No, I mean, he's just a a real spiritual person. I mean, at the end of the day, his love for people, his love for dogs. I had a dog that just got operated on and- um,
0: He took care of it,
1: He took care of the dog for two days.
0: That's just the kind of person that he was.
1: Yeah, I mean, the guy really had a hard, hard, hard of gold.
0: Unbelievable. And the the music that he was making and just this album, it was his comeback album. He was going to be around for years and years to come just to see what he would have done to have this major comeback. It would be similar to what Nas is doing now with KD and KD2.
1: 100%.
0: Is there more music from DMX that you know about that w- that will probably release? Because I know Swiss was talking about it on one of the shows.
1: Yeah, I just don't know how much. I don't know how much Swiss has. I don't know how much. Because um, I never really stayed in the a process with him because they were always so self-contained. Um, And so I'm sure there's a lot of music. I mean, we just got to figure out what we're going to do with it.
0: Are you planning anything as far as any loud concerts once things with COVID-19 gets better, another loud concert?
1: No, I don't know. What I wanna do for my 60th birthday is have another concert. Uh, so, uh, trying to figure that
0: out now. this let's incorporate not only loud, <laughs> but also SRC artists too?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I would have Akon Banner, Asher Roth, for AJ. That
0: would be fire. Is there any artists that you're looking to sign to your new label now that you're well, tapped in with?
1: We got, we got now, we got some amazing artists. We got this kid, Little Kari out of Miami, Florida, Pompano, that's starting to really make some noise. We're at 5 million streams. The record's been at four months. We got this kid, Take 45 out of San Diego, who I feel is going to be a super, superstar. Got this kid out of Portland, Oregon, Birdman, um, who might be the biggest thing that we have. And then we have my son, Ry Riff, and a girl by the name of Jarlene.
0: Do you have any New York artists? Because I know you're someone that really cares about the New York hip-hop scene. And when we're talking about New York hip-hop, it's that real lyrical stuff. The Annie Up, the MOPs.
1: Nah, not yet. But, you know, if somebody wants to give me another Annie Up, call me.
0: <laughs> I would love to see you really just... Because you're someone that... You just forget the majors. I'm going to do it on my own. Why can't I? Because you've already... Look at what you've accomplished already throughout your career. So I think you're someone that can bring hip-hop to a forefront here. I mean, you see artists in the game already with Benny the Butcher and Dave East. You see these guys that are lyrical out here, Jay Cole, Kendrick Lamar. I think if you were able to bring in some more artists like that, you could really take hip-hop back to where it's supposed to be in New York.
1: And we are. Yeah. But it's going to be in baby steps.
0: Yes. And I know you're working towards it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, just bringing back sports into it, because sports was a passion of yours you did some managing for Lamar Odom and I think you were with him at the NBA draft in
1: 1999 Wow how are you knowing all this
0: I I did a lot of research <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah so um it, it's it's funny I um Yeah I was at the draft he went number 4 he went to the Clippers the draft was the day before I was closing myself to uh, Sony. So I had to literally be at two places at once. And um, the guy who was working with me, who was handling the Mars, says, he's not, gone, he's not coming on stage unless you come in. So we had to get there. I'm wearing a gray velour Sean John sweatsuit while everybody else is in suits. And um, it was, an I couldn't go back to LA with him, but the clippers sent a plane. And the guy who was working for me went with him, and um, he was a number four draft pick for the Clippers.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Was there any other sports players that you did some business with helped out?
1: Um, not signed, but me and Grant Hill had a special relationship. Um, if he ever needed advice, I was always there. And just, you know, I sat down with his mom a few times. But just whoever well, Shaquille, I helped on the record side of things. We were neighbors and we're still like brothers. Um, and that's, you know,
0: and that's it. That's it with with Shaq, because I think he's the greatest basketball athlete rapper of all time. Was this for you can't stop the rain?
1: No, Sh- Shaq. Um, we were neighbors. We lived in the same Getty community and, um, he was always putting out records, you know, and then he made a video for a, a pun song, Off With Your Head, which was hysterical. And then he wanted to do Shack and Friends. And I said, yeah, let's do that. And then we brought it to Sony. And then that's when I decided I was going to leave Sony. So it never really happened.
0: Mm-hmm. With the record label that you have right now you're working towards it and signing a new artist. Have you thought about expanding it and doing picture deals? Is there anything that you're thinking of? But uh, yeah. Some so
1: th- this time we're doing pictures, we're, we're doing everything. We're going wide.
0: <laughs> uh, Steve Rifkin, is there anything else you would love to let the audience know and the listeners now, know?
1: I had a lot of fun with this interview. You really did your research. I take my hat off to you.
0: Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. And Steve, anytime you need any promo anything you need from anything from me as far as wanting to come on the show talk about any new ventures that you have artists that you have signed you want to talk about you're always welcome on the show
1: all right i appreciate it wait wait, you're from new york
0: i'm actually from connecticut i went to st john's university i just graduated and yeah so i'm in the tri-state area
1: all right perfect all right man congrats be safe during the holidays and um this was great
0: You too. Thank you. I appreciate it, Steve. And thank you for everything that you've done for hip-hop, too. It means a lot.
1: You're welcome. I appreciate
0: that. Yes. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day, Steve.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.